Hello and welcome to Unravelings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlotte and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're talking about Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson from 2015. And we'll hopefully be posting our schedule for the rest of the episodes that will be going on through February, either soon or at some point between when we recorded this and when you're listening to it. So go check social media for that. We'll obviously be spoiling the plot of Seven Eves. We'll drop any other spoiler and content warnings in right here. Hello from the future. No real spoiler warnings this week. But there are plenty of content warnings, because there's a lot of tragedy in this book. We will be talking about cannibalism. We will be talking about miscarriage, mental illness, particularly depression and bipolar disorder, and briefly mentioned torture. <laughs> I think that's everything. We don't get graphic with those topics, but they are discussed as plot points. And I think that's it. Sorry, this is a longer episode. Back to the past. Welcome back. So Seven Eves is a hard science fiction novel, which means that it tries to stick very close to actual science rather than allowing for too many, if we assume that we can go, say, faster than light. So it just sticks to things that are reasonably viable with current technology. It's set in the near future. The precipitating incident for the plot is that the moon breaks apart for reasons, which means that it will eventually destroy all life on Earth in about two years. Humanity sets about trying to work out how it can keep Homo sapiens alive by sending them into space, which they do, and then it sort of centres around all the technological and political and social issues that go about surviving in space and making a long-term plan for that. After several battles and winnowing down the population through accidents and a range of crises, they manage to land a very small remaining group of the population in the cleft of one of the pieces of the moon where they sort of set up a base. They're left with only eight women, one of whom has already gone through menopause. So the rest of them use genetic modification to create children that can carry on the human race. Fast forward 5,000 years and they have built up this huge colony that features effectively seven vaguely distinct races, depending on the changes that they made for their offspring's DNA. At this point, 5,000 years in the future, they've managed to make Earth habitable again with a terraforming operation. A few people have already gone down despite not being allowed to, but they send some envoys down to the planet to set up down there and discover that there are two other races that have managed to survive on the planet. Some who had managed to survive in underground mines, and some who'd managed to survive underwater in a submarine base type system. There's a few bits of diplomacy between them, and the novel sort of ends off on a vaguely open-ended note about where that might go in the future. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. It's a long summary, but it does cover a span of about 5,000 years, so... And about 900 pages. Yeah, it's a pretty substantial book. You may have noticed throughout that summary that I predicted last week that I would sound iller this week, and I was right! Yay! Okay, so getting into the meat of this, I think we talked a little bit about how they modified the genetics of their offspring, which is a interesting thing about adaptation and how like the species becomes resilient in the later part of the book. That's sort of a theme that st started fairly early on in the book, though, in various ways, from just sort of like how the species is going to survive in general, and then how the people survive throughout. Did you want to talk a bit about sort of adaptation and resilience? Well, I'm not quite sure what you mean in terms of like what you're pointing out about the beginning. Well, the need to adapt and be resilient as a species to survive this situation mm -hmm. in a fairly broad way. 
there's a recurring idea that starts being raised pretty early on that you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Like that exact phrase is used several times. Yeah. And toward the majority of the part of the book where it's almost entirely set in space on the space station and you're learning about all the preparations that are being made so that the space station can be a hub for humanity's survival or surviving contingent. You get hints that maybe there's a parallel effort for human survival underwater when Ivy mentions a couple of things that Cal, her fiancé, who is a... Submarine commander. Yeah, submarine commander, like, in the U.S. military, has been telling her or asking her about. And so she, she thinks he might be making some sort of plans in that direction. But what she's not aware of is that it looks like that was actually a concerted effort. Almost as much effort was being put into as the space like arm of the survival strategy. And then of course you have the explicit plans of Rufus McQuarrie, which is the space station's engineer's father, who is a very well-off head of a mining company and has a whole bunch of mines in Alaska that are kind of networked. So he and a bunch of families that he knows and works with spend that two years prepping in much the same way. Yeah. So he's very clear about that because we get a lot of Dinah's perspective. And she says at one point that anything that she knows about what they need to survive, that she knows because of the preparations of the space station, he also knows. So it very much seems that, like, officially the whole plan was for space but unofficially, there was also a government, a, a United States-based effort to live somewhere else and a independent citizen effort to survive. And that also begs the question of what other private citizens in other countries might have also been prepping or other militaries that may have had similar ocean-based things like that. Mm. There could be other underwater outposts where other very deep waters were in the world. There could be other underground outposts in like China or India or Europe or something that we don't hear about because most of the action we get is in Alaska. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting because they do talk about let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Like they start with the human genetic archive, which is all the eggs and sperm that have been sent up for the later repopulation of the human race in like this shielded part of the ship. But even so, they're going to distribute some of it to the little mobile arclets. So something happens to it, they'll still be, you know, something of a backup. Of course, that ends up not working out. They end up only distributing like 3% of it to the arclets because their timeline gets moved up. And of course, before they're able to do anything else, the human genetic archive does get exposed to radiation. So that sucks. But they they do all these things to try and diversify their chances of survival. Hmm. And then most of them don't work to the point where they get to the Seven Eves. And then each of them chooses a different, like, survival strategy for the human race. And some of them seem to be a cooperative survival strategy. It's if my descendants have these qualities and yours have those qualities together they will have everything that they need for a healthy and functioning society and then at some of the others a more had a more independent tack they wanted their line to be entirely self-sufficient on the circumstances that they thought would be coming up and so you just have these different principles and biases that play out in terms of what someone thinks is the best chance for human survival yeah well i mean 
With that, I mean to get a bit more into it. There's the character of Aida who has become a pariah among the Eves because she A, tried to kill them and B, resorted to cannibalism, who sort of recognises that because of her part in history, her offspring will be the pariahs among all the rest of humanity for... Perpetuity. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be this history log that people will be able to go through and see what she did mm-hmm. and will treat her children. So when she's... She, like, says, you know, the children of Dinah will throw rocks at mine and make jokes about cannibalism. Like, I think she actually says. Yeah. So, and she's right. So she works to produce a range of offspring that are, instead of geared towards how can we survive as a team, altering each one to specifically counter the other's right. strategies. Yeah, so she she ha- ends up with a sub-race that is reconstituting a lot of Neanderthal traits to be really strong and smart to counter the offspring of the Olympic athlete Russian spy person who is very strong and wants her offspring to be paragons of athletic perfection and discipline she wants super soldiers is what she she does tekla she starts a race of super soldiers and so aida is like well i'm gonna have a race of neanderthals that can beat your super soldiers and dinah is like i'm gonna make a race of heroes people who will be leaders who will take action when things need to get done and she has her betas who are her leaders yeah and i mean there's um or is it the eretics they're like the aristocrat ones that she uh, makes. But point being, yeah, she has all of her lines to sort of foil the others, basically. Yeah. And then there's the Moirans, mm-hmm. who, like, if you're going to look into adaptations. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, so there's some discussion earlier on epigenetics, I believe. So Moira's offspring are created so that in, you know, occasions of intense trauma or severe changes in circumstances... They go into a vague comatose state and literally adapt to that situation and take on a new name when they wake up. Like they have a new body, basically. Like they will look different. They will have a different personality and they consider themselves different people and that the previous iteration of them is dead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely like one of the taken to an extreme ideas of, well, I want my children, I want my line to be able to adapt to anything. And that's what she does. And like, she makes a lot of sacrifices for that because she's making such dramatic changes to her genome. She has a lot of miscarriages and only one surviving child of her own body. Her, the last one though, what she's been working for the whole time I guess, works. But one thing I do want to talk about in terms of them making those genetic choices for their offspring is that I I think that it's a mistake to indicate that, like, that initial round of genetic engineering on, like, the Eve's own children is what produces those sub-races, because I don't really think that it is. I don't think that it's possible to make that kind of dramatic change in, like, a single generation Mm. of offspring. They talk about the fact that, like, during that 5,000 years, the children of the Eves and the children of the Eves children, over time, there's a period that they call caricaturization. So, like, these subgroups kind of will end up, once there's too many people for the place that they initially set up camp, they start striking out and making other smaller habitats. And many of those are isolated by line, by, like, you know, descendants of Dinah or whatever. And during that period of time, there's a continued use of genetic engineering to double down 
on the choice that their Eve made. Yeah. And that seems to be what has really made it made them into real sub-races where like you can tell by looking at someone that they are this or that or potentially a mix of a couple of them because there is, you know, there are people who are mixed race. So that, I think it's the thousands of years of doubling down that really makes the sub-races. Yeah. And it, I think we want to come back to it, but like it is interesting, like the if you can trace everything back to those seven people, and you know so much about those yeah, seven people, you literally have years of footage of them. Then, like, it's interesting what position they take on within your society. But I think that we want to talk about that. In yeah, a we want to have a whole conversation about storytelling and narratives. Um, I realized that opening this this conversation by calling it adaptation, adaptation, and resilience might not have been the right sort of thing. Um, perhaps we need to go back and rename it. Uh, more sort of like survival or something. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one of the things that always really interested me about this book was the choices that are made and sort of how those belie various personal and cultural perceptions of strength and what's important. And you get it twice over with first the decision when the governments of the world are and the communities that don't Mm -hmm. have governments in some cases, how they decide who is going to go up onto this. Mm Mm-hmm the cloud arc, which is what they call the space mm-hmm. mission mm-hmm. thing. Because from... To the, some, effort to sur- the effort for humans to survive in space. Yeah. Because to some extent there's an aspect of, okay, well, who are the people who can make this happen technologically? Mm-hmm. And there's various people who get sent up for that, which is fairly easily noted. Yeah, like, we're going to need these roles to be filled, and so we want the best at those things. But then there's the question of who are the people that go up that... Like, they send up 1,500 people into space... How do they decide which people to send from various communities that are there to carry on the legacy of humanity? And then how do you how do they then make the decisions as to which we talked a little bit about there, like what do you keep and what don't you keep genetically? So with the who goes up for the mission to succeed, I mean you get there's the character of Doc Dubois, who mm-hmm. is effectively Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. who gets sent up because he's He's sent up as a science advisor. He has the science knowledge, but he's also become this sort of pop sensation. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson, which means that he can sort of communicate it to other people very easily as well. Yeah, it's pretty explicitly recognized by him that part of the argument for bringing him up there is that a lot of the people who are organizing the Cloud Arc don't actually believe it will succeed and that it's just a gambit to keep you know, the population of Earth from panicking in those intervening two years and becoming completely unruly. And so a big part of why he thinks that he's chosen is because he can communicate to people and sell them on the idea that the things that they're doing to ensure the best chance of the cloud arc are important and working and helpful so that they'll focus on that instead of rioting, basically. So he does believe that it can work he recognizes that there are some things that they don't seem to be taking into account, but so he decides, like, fine, I'll play along, and I'll go up there, and I'll sell this to the people as the opiate of the masses that they want it to be, but it, but really, I just want to get up there so that I can give it a better chance of working, because he has such a breadth of knowledge that he can help out with so many different things, basically. But again, that gets into more of the storytelling stuff. And I mean, there's some other people that are sent up to uh, be able to make things run, which I think we can get into a bit more in a little bit when we want to talk more about those characters. But then, I'm hoping you can speak to this a little bit, like with the 
actual selection process for who goes from communities. Mm -hmm. So that is pretty interesting because they basically have a, a rule that for every certain number of people that community gets to send one boy and one girl to basically be trained in all the stuff that they would need to know for survival in space, like orbital mechanics and things like that, piloting skills, etc., as well as all the other astronomical and physics information that would be necessary for them to pilot the little craft that they are going to have to survive in, etc. So you get this giant pool of the best and brightest of Earth, or at least what their communities think is the best representation of them. And then out of those millions of people, you have only 1,500 who actually are sent up, like the best of that bunch, you know, selected for a mix of ability and diversity, but mostly ability, but to make sure that there is some of Earth's genetic diversity, human genetic diversity also represented. And so you basically have a population of like 1500 international baccalaureate kids up there. You know, people who are used to being the smartest person in the room and never having to work that hard to be praised and to be the best and to be successful and that ends up being a problem yeah 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 these these people are the smartest that doesn't mean they have the best social skills yeah well they're sent up and they're like 15 to 18 years old they need to send young people because repopulation is going to be an issue like once we're safe we also want all these people to still be of you know child producing age sending a load of six-year-olds isn't the best idea in the world right and that does end up being a factor because only two of the seven eves are people who were sent up to the cloud arc the young people the teenagers who are brought up and they are the ones who have the greatest capacity for childbearing. One of them has 16 children, I believe, because she's made a conservative choice to breed aggression out of her kids. So the tinkering she does, and she, she also starts it slow, whereas the other one makes very bold decisions and she has five children out of 13 pregnancies Oof. because she's trying to make such dramatic changes to the genome that a lot of them aren't viable, much like the actual genetic engineer herself, Moira, who also has a lot of miscarriages because of the bold strokes she's trying to make with giving her children this ability to kind of go into a caterpillar butterfly type of situation. I mean, not literally with the goo and everything, but you know what I mean. I mean, not that far off either. True, yeah. I want to say that the time that we actually see it happen in the book, she comes back a lot stronger. Yeah, and it does also involve a lot of fluids, a lot of... A lot of vomiting and stuff and yeah. sweating and fever and things. So it does seem to involve quite a lot of stress on the body. But yeah, so it's very interesting to see like, yes, these are the priorities. We need you to be young. We need you to be smart. We need you to be fertile. <laughs> we need you to be a diversity of representatives of culture and genetics. But we also sort of shunted you over there and didn't make you involved in these decisions. And then that ends up also being a problem. Yeah. Let's get a whole bunch of smart and headstrong teenagers who think that they can run everything and then not tell them why we're making choices when we're making. A high school class in space! Yeah, kind of. Mm. One thing I do want to make sure we touch on is Julia, who is the president of the United States during this crisis. And she is not chosen to go to space. There's like a whole accord of all the leaders of the world where none of the leaders of the world are going to go into space. 
And then through some, like, shady bullshit, like, at the very last minute, she ends up getting herself fired up into space. It's very well, much this... I think this... she steals a rocket, doesn't she? Yes, that's what I'm yeah. saying. A whole bunch of shady bullshit. She and her, like, PR guy, who it seems she then shoots. She's a science advisor. Her right? science advisor, yeah. But anyway, she basically crashes the space station, and the people on the space station are like, yeah... You weren't invited here for a reason. You are completely useless to us with all the shit we've got to do in the next however many years it takes us to get to a stable location. Like, you are literally just a drain of resources and a distraction. Why are you here? But I'm the president. Of a country that no longer exists. In fact, I think that she does arrive after the point at which they've declared that all previous countries don't count anymore, effectively. Yeah. The, your allegiance is to the survival of this installation and its leadership is your leadership. You're all citizens of the Cloud Arc. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, but so it's interesting that one of the very, very, very few survivors was not chosen for any sort of survival ability. She she made it happen through her ability to accrue power. That is how she survives, is by convincing other people to back her through her powers of persuasion and her need for attention. Well, she leads her own little coup as well. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. That's what it is to lead a coup. You get a, yeah. you convince a whole lot of other people that they should use their collective power to bolster your vision. Some pretty terrible things do happen to her as a character as well, though. Oh, entirely. You know, like, it's one of those ones where she's a terrible person, but you some things happen to her and you're still like, that's that's not okay, like, whoever she is. Yeah. Another thing that we should definitely mention in terms of survival is the resorting to cannibalism, because that is a considered decision made to survive. Yes. And it's one that everyone considers doing in the space contingent, but only the Cloud Arc, the swarm that left the space station in the coup actually does and they start by eating dead people and it's justified as essentially a good husbanding of resources like we're not gonna jettison all of these precious proteins and micronutrients into space because they happen to be locked up in the corpses of our old friends when we're starving because so many and it's and it's because a lot of their agricultural systems went bad or like their algae was blighted and things so they did not have enough food for all of them to survive do they start with Dead people or does Tavistock... No, they they start with dead people and then Tavistock Prowse, who is like a social media expert or whatever, is sent up shortly before the hard rain because they figure social media is going to be really important for keeping the community together in space and all these other small distributed vehicles and vessels, etc. Yeah. He's got a blog that everyone in the Cloud Arc is reading and videos that they're watching and stuff. And he starts it as, like, he calls it soft cannibalism and eats his own legs because he argues you don't need legs in space. And so that kind of starts that. And eventually, when there's a coup where part of the swarm led by Aida calls bullshit on Julia's part of the swarm, which Tav is attached to, her faction, when they do eventually overtake Julia's, they eat Tavistock Browse. And, like, yeah, that's not okay. Yeah. Did people think this was going to be a light episode? I hope not. Point being, like, when Aida and Julia get to the space station, when they realize they're swarming, they're leaving the space station and trying to make it on their own doesn't work, and Aida eventually wins and she brings her last remnants to the space station, when they realize that they've resorted to cannibalism because once they've come in range, they can see the logs of all of their social media stuff, and they're like, oh shit, these people are cannibals. 
and they have this council, but at this point there's like 29 people left on the space station and like 10 people in Aida's remaining swarm. And they're like, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're cannibals. They're like a quarter of the human race. We have to let them in. And this other guy is like, I'm terrified of her. And Myra, I think it's, it's Louisa because she's the social worker who ends up also surviving, but has passed menopause. Louisa said, might I suggest that you're afraid of her because you know that you might become her if you were hungry enough. Because they'd all considered cannibalism. Yeah. Before. They'd all at least considered eating the dead before this happened. And so it's it's very much highlighted as this thing that's like, the cannibalism doesn't make Aida a bad person. Like, the at least the killing, the carrion eating, because they, they do call it that. Carrion eating doesn't make her a bad person. The murdering, the butchering and eating of the still alive Tavistock Prowls and the torture of Spencer Grindstaff, the hacker that's on Julia's team, and the bolting of Julia's tongue to her face yeah, so she can't talk. That shit makes her a monster. But the eating of the dead when there's hardly any other food and definitely not enough for a quarter of the human race to keep going, that not necessarily. Like, yeah. who who is being hurt in that situation? Yeah. Okay, so we, we've meandered a little bit with this mm-hmm. conversation. Well, we're talking about survival, and there's so many ways that you can talk about that with this book. We, we touched just then on a bit on the ethics of cannibalism. Yeah. Sort of a there but for the grace of God go I sort of situation. It's like, yeah. this person's terrible, they resorted to cannibalism. Well, if I was in their shoes, would I do the same thing? So as far as ethics goes, I, I might be worth mentioning for a moment the ethics of the genetic engineering side of things. Definitely. And, that's, and there's a conversation that happens when they're talking about that, about who gets to decide what is an ethical choice to make in terms of genetic engineering, what diseases should be cured, or like, is everything that is classified as a disease something that we should eliminate from the population? Right. So, I mean, it's that same thing. I I guess that, like, if there's an ethical choices as far as who gets to go up onto the space station in the first place, there's the ethical choices of what do you... What genes get passed on. And what do you get to... What do you choose to keep? What's a Mm -hmm. bug and what's a feature? Exactly. Yeah, there are a couple of great conversations about mental health in that conversation because Moira, who's the genetic engineer, says that she will fix whatever, you know, diseases are being carried by people. So, like, Dinah says her brother was a carrier of cystic fibrosis and she doesn't know if she is or not. And, like, Julia's like, I know I'm a carrier of this particular breast cancer gene. And Mara's like, don't worry about it. We have enough data on... If we have a test for it, we have the data for what it's supposed to be and I can fix that in your eggs and stuff. So I'll fix that stuff. And Aida says, what about bipolar disorder? And Mara's like, well, it does run in families. It does have some genetic bases, but they're kind of hard to pin down. But we could, def- I can do the research and fix it. And she's like, well, what if I don't want you to fix it? But if I want to have a bunch of bipolar kids, there's a lot of research on some of the adaptable qualities of that particular mental illness in terms of conserving energy in times that there's very little you can do. And then, mm. you know, expending a lot of energy to get a whole lot done during a manic phase when you do need to get a lot done. And so that's her argument. And there's a similar argument of Julia, who has depression, who suffered from depression a lot, and who had decided to stop treating it because she felt like the medication was making her stupid, which is a controversial thing to include in this book. But at least she didn't feel like she could find a good balance of medication and decided that she would rather have the ability to foresee all the negative possibilities and suffer with that knowledge 
if she could use that ability to, you know, have that kind of foresight for the betterment of her community, you know, to kind of warn other people. I I actually enjoy paranoia, which... Well, not paranoia, but depression or, like, anxiety. Right, but I mean, it's the fear of every possible outcome. Yeah. The concern that the worst one might happen. Right. And so she essentially insists that depression be preserved in her line because she feels like having people who are depressed in your population is important in the larger scheme of things. Yeah. And so that's an interesting um, argument. And so like what the seven Eves end up deciding is that everyone gets to decide what the, what's done with their eggs. You know, my eggs, my choice type of a thing. Yeah. But and Myra will give each of them like there's like one... Thing that she will try to enhance or promote or whatever in the offspring. They can each make sure that they're contributing what they want to contribute to, you know, the survival of humanity, basically. It leads to an interesting philosophical discussion on what do you need to survive in space and what do you need, what will the human race need to survive to the point where they can recolonize Earth in five to ten thousand years. Aggression's another interesting conversation that happens for that. It's an interesting point of view from Neil Stevenson. I mean, like, they're put in a position where the race is going to have to continue through some genetic stuff mm-hmm. because they're going to have to use parthenogenesis. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you could make the argument that, and, I, and there are many people in the world who would, people who feel that you shouldn't do genetic engineering on human children, that, you know, you should use enough of that technology to create an embryo, but beyond that, like, everything should continue as it is except that wouldn't work because you'd end up with founder effects of a whole bunch of genetic diseases and stuff you could use enough genetic engineering to avoid the founder effects without Mm -hmm. say enhancing strength or or reducing aggression Mm -hmm. the way that neil stevenson presents what has happened to humanity afterwards is not cut and dry on whether he thinks that that was necessarily a good idea it was just a it's one choice that was made and and it's interesting because the spacers are the only ones that it's explicitly confirmed use genetic engineering to create or to change essentially from rootstock humanity to the groups that survive in space well pingers use um, selective, selective breeding, breeding. Yeah. yeah the pingers being the submarine race of humans who essentially evolve to hold their breath for really long periods of time and sort of become sort of dolphin-ish or seal-ish people you know like they have blubber and no hair and they can swim underwater for and hold their breath underwater for really long periods of time so i don't know that i buy it though i don't think five thousand years is long enough to selectively breed between like me and you and a dolphin person yeah i just i think i call bullshit Especially, and I think that that's fair considering how difficult specific communication is with the pingers. Like, at the end of the book, a handful of spacers have talked to a couple of the pingers. And we know that in the past few hundred years, a handful of the diggers, the people who live underground in the mines, Rufus's uh, descendants, talk to the pingers like a few times sporadically over a few hundred years. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're not really able to, like, selective breeding could be selecting genes specifically for breeding. Like, you know, like, like there's a lot of communication barriers there. So I I just don't think it makes sense. (laughs) 
No, without there being a test tube involved somewhere. Yeah. Like... You're not getting a human with blubber in 5,000 years. That's not happening. No, I mean, you might get ones with a larger lung capacity, but that's about it. Yeah, so... And, like, the genitals uh, shielded by, like, flaps. Like, the sort of skin flaps that other uh, cetaceans Mm. and things have. Like, to create, like, a smooth underwater body. There's just too many changes that are too dramatic, I think. It would make sense with genetic engineering, because that's the same way you get... The anime eye, tiny mouth, huge eye, uh, Julian subspecies of the spacers. Like, that shit's part of the caricaturization where they're selectively using genetic engineering to double down on all these decisions yeah. that they that they perceive their Eve to have made in terms of their idea of what was a good survival strategy. So, yeah. The diggers do use selective breeding, and that's pretty clear because the one digger that they really sort of uh, the spacers who we follow at the end of the book really start to talk to is Sonar Taxlaw, who is an encyclopedia. And what that means is that she has spent her life reading the Encyclopedia Britannica and memorizing and understanding all the concepts specifically for the ones between Sonar and Taxlaw, that one volume. And part of why she was chosen for that role is because she's on the spectrum. But she's also she also says it's because they decided she wasn't a breeder and they, through further questioning, determine that maybe maybe four out of every ten women is considered a breeder and chosen for such qualities as physical stature and, like, hardiness, basically. Like, how healthy you are, how beautiful you are, and those kinds of things. So they're selectively breeding by culling down who can breed to just the, the prettiest and healthiest of them. Yeah. Which is its own ethical quandary. Right. (laughs) And I do find it interesting that in a culture, the diggers, that needs encyclopedias, like they they need people to memorize all of this stuff because they know they're, you know, they're a very limited amount of paper and things like that, that you wouldn't want to breed for the spectrum because it, you know, her being on the spectrum is part of what helps her memorize things so effectively. Yeah. And it's, again, one of those things of, is it a bug or is it a feature? In this culture, her being on the spectrum was a feature. It helped them fill a very critical role in their society. But was also, in terms of breeding, I guess they don't want it overrepresented in the population. So they're like, but how do you do that? Like, if you find you're not getting enough kids who are good at enough at, you know, reading really young, do you then choose a psych type person someone who might have been a psych to breed instead like what do you do well the spaces like become several different subspecies the diggers are more sort of maintaining one main strain and then if they're offshoots cool we'll use them maybe but we won't i don't know it, it's problematic in a way that i don't think i have the yeah it's, I, it's I don't difficult. think i can discuss that properly right now yeah so. but i do think it ties in to that idea of like you know is depression something that you know, contribute something to our society is bipolar disorder, is autism. There are a lot of people who argue, like, a lot of people on the autism spectrum and a lot of activists, you know, promoting understanding of autism as a spectrum do argue that it's not something to cure. Yeah. It's something to integrate into our society. It's something that we need to, as a society, make sure we are inclusive of, you know, we need to recognize the strength in neurodiversity, basically. Yeah, it's the, is being trans a mental health issue? Or is it just that it doesn't fit into our culture's understanding 
and our culture's template. And categorizations, yeah. yeah. I think that, that covers all the notes I've got here for survival slash adaptation slash resilience. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, this is one of those warning notes again. Um, we have once again ended up doing this recording session in two bites. So this is a couple of days later. If we sound different for some reason, it's because of that. Don't worry, I'm still ill. Charlene's still mildly sick. So if we sound all nasally and deep voiced, that's why. And I think we wanted to open up with a quick comment that Charlene thought of after our last recording session. Before we move on from this conversation about bug versus feature as an aspect of survival choices that were made or strategies that were implemented by humans uh, trying to survive the hard rain, I did want to point out that there's the, that there's potentially an implication which would be kind of problematic that bipolar disorder is linked to creativity because we know that Aida has bipolar disorder, or at least she implies that she does. And it seems from some of the observations of other characters that she does. And she says like she wants to, what if she wants to preserve that in her descendants, makes arguments about how adaptive it is, etc. like we said before. And then down the line in the 5,000 years later segment, most of the descendants of Aida, Julia, and about half of the descendants of Camilla have essentially split off into their own, like, red faction, opposed and at sort of a weird Cold War, occasionally actual war state with Blue, the remaining spacers. One of the people in Blue makes the statement that there's a reason that most of the Aedans who have been successful and found a prominent place in the Blue side have been artists and musicians and actors and things like that, that they're filling a need in their culture, in the Blue culture, that isn't met by any of the other, like, Blue strategies. And it very much seems to, I think, relate back to this idea that if you don't have tendencies toward bipolar disorder, you lose an essential creative spark in your population. And the reason that I'm saying that if this is a statement that's being made, this is a problematic statement to make, because right now that's an issue a lot of creative people who have bipolar or, or other forms of depression or other mental illnesses have, like, a lot of people avoid getting help going on medication in particular because they worry it will blunt or change their creative perspective. Yeah, so I wanted your thoughts on that. You, you wanted my thoughts on that as a creative person who has issues with depression and anxiety. <laughs> who has expressed reservations about medication for yeah, that reason. Yeah, um, I mean, I know that rationally the odds of any medication affecting my creative ability are null, that they've done studies on these things and it's not, and there's the argument that says that like, if your depression is bad enough that you're not creating, then surely you need to treat it so that you can at least have the energy to create. One of the things that I, that makes me most hesitant about it, apart from the fact of just generally trying to, I don't know, deal with things on my own rather than getting outside help because that's, um, I don't know, a toxic part of our culture that I've internalized. I've always been told that I'm very good at writing dialogue and I sort of attribute that to my own anxiety and the fact that my internal monologue is almost always running test drills on conversations and how they're going to go before they happen with people in the real world. If I'm having anything close to a stressful conversation with someone, I've already played it out seven times and thought of all the ways it could go. So I suspect that that helps me to imagine how a conversation would go naturally within my fiction writing. So there's a little part of me that worries that medication that might help me exist better within our society might also dampen those voices that make my dialogue so good in my fear. Yeah, modesty at its best, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I, like on some part of me knows that that's an irrational fear, and maybe I should seek treatment in that way. I wouldn't say it's an irrational fear, because I definitely have friends who are creative people who have gone on different medications, and they've had to change medications because the first ones, you know, that they've tried did, they felt like blunt their creative energy or like it, they seemed to feel like they in general as a person were, you know, kind of diminished by that, by that medication. And so it's a matter of finding the right one. But I, a lot of those same people have also like, after t- expressing to their doctors, like the concerns that they were having, have managed to find a better treatment option that they did not feel was inhibiting them in that way. So, you know, I can understand the concern because it does seem to be something a lot of people, like, anecdotally have had experience with, but that doesn't mean there isn't an answer um, in terms of medical treatment for things like that. Yeah. So, like, I do definitely get it, and I can see why Neil Stevenson has included this. I mean, I know nothing about Neil Stevenson as a person, and he's very careful to make sure that nobody knows anything about Neil Stevenson as a person. He sort of eschews all social media and convention appearances and things, and just sort of, like, sits in a hall and writes his books, and people can enjoy them far away from him, as far as I can tell. So I don't know what he does or doesn't deal with, and what his views might be on from his own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I do see your point that potentially presenting that idea unconfronted Mm -hmm. within the work could be damaging, for people who do sort of have that assumption that, well, if I treat my bipolar, then I'm not going to get to be creative. And I would argue that maybe like my, I have some mild anxiety issues versus someone else's bipolar isn't a great mm-hmm. one-to-one ratio. But perhaps presenting that unconfronted without any sort of nod to a either or mm-hmm. might be damaging. Well, particularly in conjunction with Julia's assertion that like she tried to treat her depression with medication and it made her stupid. And she felt that it took an important skill or an important characteristic that she was able to use in service of the community away from her. Yeah. And get, so like the combination of both of those things that like if you treat your depression, it'll make you stupid and, you know, take your insights away from your community that could help them. And if you treat your bipolar disorder, it will in the population, you'll have no artists like there's both of those things without any other sort of balancing idea. Well, aside from, I guess, the fact that Aida is a cannibal who persuaded a bunch of people to slaughter a social media guru and eat him so that she would be well fed for her coup. And Julia's own narcissism and, like, self-importance that is presumably the same thing that drives her to feel that this element of her is worth pre- uh, preserving leads her to fly herself into space and lead yeah. a coup. Um, like, yeah. we, we do say, you know, well, I sit here and I say... There's no countervailing narrative. <laughs> the two characters that are presented as having mental illness that is untreated also aren't necessarily portrayed in the best light, which might be a different issue. Yeah, that's true. There's, I suppose the other side of that coin is there in that both of those characters, while contributing something you know, arguably critical to a community that is arguably actually or not actually connected with their mental illness, you know, because you, you could definitely argue, I mean, maybe Julia is just an insightful politician with a lot of experience and her depression maybe plays a part of that, but probably not all of it, etc. Same thing with Aida. You know, she's a very dramatic and persuasive person. That doesn't necessarily all come from being bipolar, you know, you have creative and persuasive people who aren't bipolar, but they are also the like unchecked forces who end up being a lot more 
aggressive and destructive in their perspectives. So. The, their cast as the villains to our heroes. We yeah. have Dinah, who literally wants to go on and make a race of heroes, mm-hmm. um, who is presented as one of our main protagonists, mm-hmm. whose view of these people is not good. Mm-hmm. And 5,000 years later, those are the, the blue side are the heroes, and there's this villainous red side that are the ones that they've got to get to the diggers before them and oh no the diggers have gone with the reds and mm-hmm. all this and side the of reds things propaganda machine etc yeah. it's all flashing um, substance so they are portrayed as the villains just so for us to say that that is an unconfronted thing mm-hmm. might not be fair yeah that's true but it all might also be that unchecked mental illness is presented as a villain in a way that is also maybe not entirely fair mm-hmm. but i mean at the same time i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this I, I see your point. I was kind of worried that those two, that those assertions together about depression and bipolar disorder might support people who are already unwilling to get any help and are letting their condition deteriorate to a dangerous extent because, you know, they don't want to lose an important part of themselves when that's not, that's not a, it's not a foregone conclusion that you will lose a critical piece of who you are by treating your mental health and fact, generally, like if you you're in a really bad state and you're not able to be functional, if you treat that problem, you regain so many parts of yourself in terms of being able to act effectively in the world and engage in the way that you know you've been kept from doing. But your your point is a good one that like yeah, it might be saying that, but it's also saying that you know these are dangerous, unpredictable forces in a person or in a population that can also lead to a lot of problems if they're not balanced out some way okay Okay. so are we good with the survival conversation right yes three days later so one of the things that i want to talk about in this is sort of how individuals are used from two sides of it one in like how there's the power of the individual we have the continuing of honor the species driven by a few main protagonists who make huge strides in themselves. Sean Props mm-hmm. makes huge differences as this individualist billionaire outside of everything else. Dr. Guar presents some of the theories that really drive things forward. Obviously, each of the seven Eves have their own strong individualist nature. But also, so sort of that from a narrative point of view and what that does storytelling-wise, I also want to look at how you get this synecdocal use of an individual to represent an entire group of people within the narrative because they're talking about the human race, mm-hmm. but he's only using a cast of 20 people or something. Mm-hmm. So I think a really good place to start with this conversation is to set up looking at Sean Props, the billionaire, mm-hmm. versus Julia mm-hmm. as the Julia Bliss Flaherty, if we're mm-hmm. going to use full names for people, as these two individuals who both at the start of the story have a lot of power and what we're told about them and where they end up. Mm-hmm. You have Sean Props, who's kind of like... The Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I, very, very much like he, he is Elon Musk, sure. Yeah. He's kind of like viewed on dimly by the protagonists at the start as being like some playboy with two, more money than sense. He's not a playboy. Oh, okay. Some, some billionaire with more money than sense then. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but he's in a situation where he has noticed a large problem. Yeah. That is being ignored by the majority of people, possibly because this whole cloud arc thing is just kind of a placebo to keep everyone calm. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, they're going to need water. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sets off in his own personal rocket, because he is Elon Musk, goes off to get this giant ice comet core that he can bring back to the ISSS so that they will have water for all the things they need it, most importantly for creating rocket fuel in space. Mm-hmm. And his use of some of the technology is what gets Ivy 
removed from power on the ISS. That's... Yeah. Well, because of the way she handles him essentially gate-crashing the space station. So he comes up without authorization, which means, you know, another person draining their resources, etc. But he's Dinah's boss, Dinah being the engineer on the space station. And so she lets him in. And then Ivy gives him permission to board after he's already boarded. And uh, after he gets tackled by Tekla, the Russian cosmonaut, who is like, oh, you're not authorized. <laughs> Bam. Um... <laughs> Sorry to everyone's eardrums for that clap. I mean, it's it's a pretty funny funny scene, but then people think that she was too soft, basically, on you know him coming up without protocol and like by not detaining him, etc. Yeah, and so yeah, that does end up weakening her status in the eyes of people who are deciding like who will be in tar- in charge now that this is a much bigger operation. Yeah, but he then goes off to get this comet in this very small crew of people and successfully manages to steer it back to ISS dying in the process. Mm-hmm. But like sort mm-hmm. of gets close enough to be like, hey, here's your comment before he passes away. Mm-hmm. And without that, the human race would not survive. Yes. Like that, that is fairly definitively stated. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this one individual who devoid of everything else, devoid of all authority has gone, this is what needs to happen Nobody else is doing it. I will do it. Mm-hmm. I have the resources, importantly. Yes. So I'm, and I don't need anyone's permission because he's an independent, private business owner. So he doesn't have a chain of command to look to. He's the top of his chain of command, and I think that's an important aspect of why he can just do it. You yeah. know, whereas the United States government, who is like internally divided on you know, whether we actually give the space station all of the materials that they need because they are going to need it, or if we don't because they're not going to make it anyway and it's just a waste of effort and resources to send them stuff, you know, that ends up kind of locking shit down and making, you know, slowing down the whole process. Right. Which is the other point, which is contrary to Sean Probst, you have Julia Bliss Flaherty, who has been the President of the United States... Mm-hmm. But by the time that she gets to the space station, illicitly, mm-hmm. the United States doesn't really exist anymore. Everything's under the command of the ISSS. The and, Cloud Arc. And the Cloud Arc. And she gets there, and she's been this powerful leader, but now isn't needed, doesn't really have any power, and really only causes problems throughout the book. I don't think that there's a point at which she does something helpful. No, not really. She she just shitsters, basically. Um, because... They are like, oh, you weren't supposed to be up here. That's why you weren't brought up here. There's nothing you can contribute. So they just put her in a an arclet. But because she's in an arclet and there are people who remember her as being the president of the United States, most importantly, Camilla, who was a guest at the White House and is sort of a Malala Yousafzai figure who was sent up by like Denmark or somewhere that she was actually taking asylum from an Islamic country where she had continually been the target of assassination attempts because of her efforts to promote women's education. So she was a guest of Julia at the White House and, you know, felt warmly toward her and things like that and continued to treat her like she's the president, which sort of set a tone for other people in the arcs to treat her as, you know, not just as the president, but she was also the only person in their 40s, yeah. you know, in that entire population of teenagers. So she was able to command this authority, even though they were all a lot more technically savvy than she was, she was able to sort of organize them, basically, and and put these ideas in their heads of like, 
oh, but you know, you guys are the ones who are going to be the foundation for the human race. And, you know, oh, these you know, experts in the space station aren't just sort of shoving you off to the side and ignoring you. And they don't seem to be asking what, you know, any of you guys think about, you know, the different options for our survival, whether we should ditch the asteroid and move into a higher orbit as a cloud, or whether we should, you know, keep the asteroid to protect us, you know, yeah. and like, these are huge decisions that affect you and your descendants. And they should really be asking you what you think and getting the will of the people and stuff, which leads to a bunch of them breaking away yeah. and doing their own thing. We're yeah, and I mean, that's through those characters as well as some other ones. So I mean, also in a different way, but in the same vein to Julia, you have Aida's own political machinations that go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Tavistock Prowse's social media, mm-hmm. which is that same sort of, as you say, worm-tonguing, mm-hmm. like politics is being used through social media, mm-hmm. which, you know... I have this platform everyone is exposed to all the time. Yeah. You know, so I can get my ideas out there. So you sort of end up with this, the two sides of it being these individuals who are um, behind, like, the use of language to control people and political machinations and gaining power mm-hmm. versus this side of people like Sean Propst, Dinah, Ivy, who are all much more on the side of pragmatism. Mm-hmm. It's, there is a problem, we will fix it. Mm-hmm. There is a problem, we will fix it. And it's why they leave open the door for people like Julia, because they're so focused on problems that we can fix that mm-hmm. they don't spot the problem of the archies being rallied around something because they are ignoring the archies mm-hmm. because frankly the archies are a bunch of kids who don't know what they're doing and they need them later it, that that's like they're kind of viewing the archies as a supply of stuff that they're going to need down the line and not as something critical to the urgent crisis of now and th- yeah there is sort of this ongoing battle between talking and doing and the people that are the most sympathetic in the books are the people who see a problem and do something about it and the people who talk about things extensively and you know try to gain support the support of other people for them to do things instead of you know just doing stuff directly those seem to be like the bad guys you know tm and there are some people who are good at both of those things like uh, dr harris he's good at communicating things to people but also he's using his ability to communicate effectively with people and make sure everyone's on the same page so that shit gets done. And he's constantly working on present problems at the same time. So it's like his ability with diplomacy and like education. It's like the difference between politics and education. Yeah, his his role and his what he values is communicating and informing people, mm-hmm. not controlling people or having power. Right. He seems to have very little interest in power. He's sort of set up as having this big social media presence and being this TV personality but finding it mildly tiresome to some right. degree. He's like, I, I guess this is who I am, sure. But it's a persona like he talks about putting on and taking off. Yeah. Um, and later abandoning entirely when it's no longer needed. It was a tool. Like yeah. that kind of persuasive educating presence was a tool to, it seems, inspire a generation of doers. It's to make people excited about science. It's to get people interested in what's going on in the world around them so that they themselves will be inspired to move forward in those directions. 
and get things done. We've talked about him a little bit as being Neil deGrasse Tyson. May- he's maybe also Bill Nye the science guy. Maybe he's yeah. also Bill especially with the like movement that Bill Nye seems to be taking from having been this like fun, friendly, like, mm-hmm. look, science is fun to this point where he's like Guys, the world is on fire. What are you doing? Yeah. Did you see that video? I haven't, but I heard about it. Yeah, where he like literally like sets a globe on fire and is... Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if he actually swears in it, but I think he might. Yeah, um, I have definitely heard about it. I have not watched it. I think it might have been part of a last week tonight. I don't know. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Charlotte will link to it in the show notes. Thanks. Yeah, there's definitely this idea that like you can't get anything done unless you actually just go and do it, but also that it's a big mistake to ignore, you know, the political side of things and the way that things get spun. If you're not paying attention, that shit's going to bite you in the ass because that happens several times. But I don't know that it's set up as a you need to pay attention to this stuff so much as it's set up as it's a problem that people do this stuff. Hmm. Because... In the 5,000 years later section, they do come together at the end with a, oh, we're going to form the first nine, we're all going to work together kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the split that you see within the ring, the split that you see within the habitat ring is between those two sides. It's the blue hero type people who are going to go and get things done. And then you have the Aedans and the Julians, who are very much, we just talked about, like being those political machination people, and then the Camites are kind of split across. split between the two because there's the side of things where they've got drawn into that political role with Julia mm-hmm. and has been that supporter, but that still comes from that heart of that activism that she did when she was mm-hmm. younger. Well, it's interesting because Camilla actually hates Julia by the end of yeah. their, like... Because at the point that Julia and the Swarm split off, Camilla realizes, oh, you're a terrible person and you've just been manipulating all of us and you don't care who gets hurt because Julia shoots Tekla in that, you know, initial exit. She tries to, doesn't she? She No, she does shoot her. Uh, I think she gets hit in the chest or something. She does get injured. wounded rather than Yeah, she gets wounded and... Camilla also gets wounded because the she tries to block Julia's gun and her shawl catches fire and burns her arm mm-hmm. like really badly. So she realizes, oh, Julia doesn't care who she hurts in the pursuit of ascending to power, basically, and hates that she was a part of that. And like when Julia initially leaves, Camilla outright says, I hate her. Yeah. So that's interesting because there's this historical fallout between Julia and Camilla that you see a lot of those personal relationship dynamics playing out in the subraces. So I, I doubt that it's that, you know, K-mites really like Julians. No. <laughs> you know, it just seems that uh, because Camilla wanted her descendants to be non-aggressive and to thrive in living in like constrained spaces doing potentially repetitive and menial things. She wanted her people to be able to just kind of be okay in whatever circumstance, put their head down, get whatever they need to get done, done and not make waves. And so they are fine in either blue or red. Like you want to have this propaganda machine going, spinning a story all the time, whatever, that's fine. I got shit to do. You know, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to help people. I'm going to take care of other people. I'm going to do the things that other people don't necessarily don't want to do, but have to happen for us to have a civilization. Um, And the same thing with, with blue, you know, you need nurses, you need care workers, you need nursery staff, you need the, all these people, and that's fine, we'll, we'll do that stuff. So they, it doesn't seem to matter whether they're bathed in, you know, exaltation of science or exaltation of our greatness as the Reds, you know. Yeah. But I do see what you mean about this implication that it's politics is a nuisance, and it just interferes with people making advances and being great. Yeah. 
I think it's interesting that social media seems to get lumped in with the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, the book was written, I think, between 2013 and 2015. And, I mean, we, we were all aware that social media was a thing mm-hmm. and it was starting to be used more politically. But it wasn't really until we hit 2016 that we were like, oh, it's being used politically and it is a big driving force in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's um, a propaganda machine. It's the propaganda machine the likes of which our civilization hasn't hadn't seen. Yeah. And it can be manipulated. Right. And I feel like Neil Stevenson managed to like get in under the wire on foreseeing that one yeah. being an issue. I definitely uh, agree to that. I do like his occasional, like, uh, the, the uh, what's the term for it? Like, the avoiding using the brand names of things with Spacebook mm-hmm. and uh, what's the Skype one? Is it just Scape? It's, it's uh, yeah, it's Scape. Scape. Yeah. It's <laughs> pretty fun. There's also, um, similar to this, you know, individual... You know, individuals just doing things, having a huge impact. There's a line very late in the 5,000 years later part where one of the Dinans says, fighting isn't about knowing how, it's about deciding to. Mm. And I think that's tied up in that same sort of concept of like doing versus talking about it. Like if you're trying to get a consensus or you're trying to do a lot of research, like you might miss your window of opportunity. Like there's an extent to which nothing gets done unless you just decide that you're going to do it and do it. Yeah. Which I think like a couple of the other people that I've got notes down for wanting to speak about as sort of individuals with power. Mm-hmm. And again, they're that sort of like they're separate. Well, hmm. it's an interesting dichotomy because you've got Rufus. Mm-hmm. Um, Dinah's father, who's the miner, who sort of births the digger movement, as mm-hmm. it were, where he and his family are just like, okay, this is going to happen. We may as well try and make a break for it. We've got all this know-how of technology. We've got indef- independent wealth. Mm-hmm. Our Le- daughter is part of a self-sustaining, you know, sustaining the human race in space thing, so she can tell us any parts we're missing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like- um, I, as individual Rufus, mm-hmm. am going to try and make a break for us to survive. It's dependent, independent of any sort of government issues or anything. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do it by himself. He doesn't, but he does lead it, and it is mm-hmm. his motivation that mm-hmm. gets them there. Although, I don't know that it's it's not super clear. Like, it seems to be... Like, he's definitely spearheading it. But I think he's, it's said somewhere, like, he talks to some of the other families. It doesn't seem to be, like, just him that wants to do this. He's probably one of the people who's like, do we think we could do this? Do we want to do this? And other people are like, yes, we're going to do this. Because also, they're miners. They're union people. Like, these are people who, they have big meetings and they decide a lot of big stuff about what they want and how they're going to get it. So I think that's an important aspect that you can't really, you can't forget about that part. Because I think that's critical to them doing it. But also, they're not politicians they're the sort of people they have a meeting they decide what they're going to do and they do it they don't get bogged down in all of these other how is it going to look whatever bullshit but i think narratively with how neil stevenson presents it with Dinah's point of view mm-hmm. you do see him being a spearhead figure and i mean you can go True. that okay logically we can say that well i mean they're part of unions and da, 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 da. but the way that it's presented from a storytelling and how we're presenting individuals in this Mm -hmm. i think he's presented as leading and also when you meet the diggers Mm -hmm. they're noted as all having the mcquery red hair Mm -hmm. and like they all look as though that they're rufus's kids well the group that they particularly encounter they ask them uh the spacers ask if they're descendants of rufus mcquery and they do say we're all of that lineage yeah so they do meet 
some of his lineage, not from one of the other families. And yeah, there's a note that they there might be other groups of diggers around the world, mm -hmm. but we don't meet any of them in the book. Yeah. Um, if if Seven Eves 2 happens, maybe we mm -hmm. meet them then, but who knows. But we do get that sort of self-drive, and they do survive in these networks of tunnels, um, and a lot of the information that we get, as I say, is from Rufus, Like, and there's the note about when they're blocking off the end of the tunnel, and that sort mm -hmm. of cuts off communication, and that's sort of the last you hear from him. Mm -hmm. Then you sort of have on the other end of that spectrum, Cal, mm -hmm. Ivy's fiance, who's got the nuclear submarine stuff going on, mm -hmm. which we only get a sort of vague notion of the individual there, but in retrospect we find that there has been a, if not government, then a military-supported push for a extra route of survival there. Mm-hmm. Which I don't really know how that fits into that narrative. It seems to explain some of the difficulty with resource allocation of the Cloud Arc. If it was a, you know, the government had its own secret, you know, survival strategy that was submarine in addition to the global push for the cloud arc that they were supporting and if they felt like that was the real survival strategy that was going to actually have a better chance of success then it might explain why doc harris realized that at least the science advisor seemed to be treating the cloud arc as though it were just a pretty dream to distract the people. It's interesting that if that's going on because like if it's a secret like government plan Mm -hmm. you don't have the same questions of, like, who can go there. You're mm -hmm. not having that same group of, like, oh, we're going to get people from all around the world Why didn't to go Julia there. go there? Why didn't Julia go there? Why did she go into space? Well, at the point of the the where the hard rain was starting, she might not have been able to. Like, they might have been able to shoot a rocket up, but they might not have been able to bring a submarine down. They may have already had everything yeah, down. Yeah, actually, because Cal had gone down before mm -hmm. that started. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why. I she think might, she'd missed the window. She needed to be a figurehead long enough that she couldn't be. Yeah. I yeah, I think, that, I think that's why. But it does seem to be that it was like a secret government operation because in the last, in the later part when they encounter the pingers, the descendants of the submarine group, they talk about how the pinger civilization, their like librarians and researchers had combed through all of the pictures that Cal sent Ivy before they went below. And and taking selfies um, the way that he did and sent to her was, like, against the codes and regulations. Like, he wasn't supposed to do that. And in general, he was very stringent about following, like, all of the protocols. So it was, like, analyzed to death because, like, oh, this is very out of character for him. Why would he do this? And so what they noticed is that all those pictures, the selfies that he took, had strategic, like, equipment and stuff in the background that when Ivy saw that stuff, she would be able to put together the pieces to see that they were also a backup plan for human sur survival. Yeah. Like, that she would be able to tell, oh, they're going to make a go of it, too. Because he couldn't tell her. And he wasn't supposed to send his girlfriend selfies. But that was a much, like, l you know, tinier infraction type of situation, I guess. Um, yeah. So it does seem to have been a covert but comprehensive Is there any indication... plan. Is there any indication within the book that Ivy was a like did work that out? Like she does say something like that she suspects that that might be a thing. Like I don't think she lets on that she thinks it's like a an actual government operation. I think she thinks it's a smaller thing that Cal is trying to do. Yeah. 
going back to talk, talking about how, you know, a single individual has a lot of power to do a lot if they don't get bogged down in politics and, you know, other organizational constraints, basically, like government constraints or what have you. I think Sean Props is a particularly interesting one to talk about because he talks about having Asperger's syndrome, which has since been removed from the DSM, but is essentially like a very high functioning form of autism spectrum disorder. So it's mentioned like his personality was a problem. So like problem TM, like for his business. So he hired a consultant and for things. optics. Yeah, for optics and stuff. And like he refers to himself as an asp hole asphole as an Asperger syndrome. And there is definitely some implication that his lack of social awareness has disinhibited him from just doing what he knows has to get done and that that might be an important part of how he is able to be the hero that humanity needs. He is dispositionally uninterested in what other people are worrying about in terms of politics, basically. Mm. Um, so I think that's interesting. And then similarly, although not explicitly with the autism stuff, um, Marcus, who also similarly doesn't care much for like social niceties um, and, you know, does things like right after talking to Dr. Harris about how his embryo was part of the human genetic archive and was exposed to radiation and is dead now, says the human genetic archive was bullshit. Like just right out there like that. And I mean, he makes a good point, but it's still very harsh and he does things like that a lot of times where he's just very matter of fact he's very blunt about stuff and he just goes and does the thing that needs to happen up to and including his own self-sacrificing mission to bring emir the comet core to the space station after sean has died getting it into position to be brought in yes you have both of these men who are critical to bringing in the giant ball of propellant that the cloud arc needs to get into a safer orbit are both these guys who are like, yeah, I don't care about your feelings. I'm just going to get what I need to get done done. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do and you're going to do it. More Marcus on the last one because he was a leader. Yeah. It is interesting to what degree the message of the book does seem to be feelings and people aren't important. Getting shit done is what's important. It's feelings and people can be a problem. (laughs) Which, like, I don't know is the is a good message, necessarily. It does seem to be the prevailing message. And, I mean, if you look at, like, some of the relationships that happen within the book, like, within that pre-5000 year span, but after they're in space, like, Dinah has a fairly emotionally disconnected relationship with Reese mm-hmm. and ends up, like, breaking that off because he's kind of depressive and moody. Mm-hmm. And Bring the... me down, man. <laughs> right, and then he later kills himself. Like, yeah. But you also then not, not see... related to being dumped by Dinah, but yeah. Um, but you do also see how important, like she respected him as an engineer, and he was important for in, for inspiring her for a lot of the things that she did later. And you see that his name is a legacy like name in the Dinah line, and so you see like that relationship was important to her though. Like, right for a lot of the like, oh, you're such a good engineer, you're so useful, and the sex is okay. Like yeah. As far as, like, a tool of use, okay, the tool was not the best word. Okay. Um, but pragmatically, mm-hmm. you're useful, you're smart, intelligent, this is great. Mm-hmm. But you've got all these emotions, man. Mm-hmm. And then as far as, like, other... Like, there's not a lot of relationships that seems to take place. I believe... Jamara and Tekla, who seem to have a very, like, loving relationship. Yeah, there is that. And then there's Ivy and Marcus. Mm-hmm. No, there's Dinah and Marcus. Is it Dinah and Marcus? Mm-hmm. Dinah just gets everywhere. <laughs> well, that ends up being, like, you know, the racist stereotype is that Dinans are slutty. Really? I mean, it's it's kind of hinted at subtly. Uh-huh. Um, 
there's a point when, uh, like, the Dainan member of the the seven that they put together to meet the diggers and then to meet the, the pingers is uh, Tai, who's a bartender from a family of people who colonized Earth before they were supposed to. Yeah. And when he meets the Neoander, one of the Aedans, who's going to be the Aedan in the Seven, he makes a joke about cannibalism that he knows is like, and it's in the text, is like, this is either going to start a fight or it will make us friends. Yeah. And he's just taking that conversational gamble just immediately, just right there. And the Neoander laughs. And then later they uh, are talking about, because both of their families are people who went to the surface before they were really supposed to be colonizing it. And uh, so they're talking about trading among other communities there. And the Neoander's like, oh, what did you trade? Uh, what did you give them? Your women? Which is a joke about Dinan, potentially Dinan women specifically, maybe just Dinans in general being slutty. Right. Uh, this is like Myrans sleep all the time. Neoanders or Aedans are cannibals. Julians are paranoid and crazy. I don't think there is a stereotype about Kmites that comes up. It's interesting yeah. that you get these stereotypes that... Are based on one person's actions. Well, it's interesting that you go from this position early on in the book where, as I say, like I think that a lot of the individuals are representative of larger groups and you sort of like... We'll get into it in a minute, but, like, the fact that, like, there's representatives from a lot of different nations. So, like, Reese is the one British person in the story, I think. Mm -hmm. You do get a lot of characters who, like, a lot of nations are represented within characters in the story. I mean, obviously, we don't get a named character from every country because mm -hmm. that wouldn't necessarily be feasible. But a lot of, I don't think that there's a lot of characters who are from the same nation. Except on the space station, there are a lot of Americans and a lot of Russians. That makes sense. Because there were a lot of Americans and a lot of Russians at the time of the crisis, and you couldn't really bring people down, you really just added people, mostly. And then I think that um, within the Americans, there's a lot of people of different heritage. Um, yeah. I Ivy Zhao, or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, Ivy is a Chinese-American. Yeah. Yeah, and that is particularly interesting in light of how the absence of an individual to represent a place ends up being a huge factor, like, during the crisis point of, you know, the hard rain starting. Because it turns out that nobody in the Cloud Arc is from Venezuela, even though they sent a lot of people to, you know, the large pool of training grounds or whatever. And part of that is statistics, but part of it is they talk about the fact that, and this kind of relates back to our conversation about survival strategies, while every community was entitled to send one boy and one girl for consideration, every community of a certain size, most communities didn't have that be like an actual random luck of the draw, everyone's entered within an age or whatever age span and whoever you know comes up in the lottery goes most places didn't do that but venezuela did and most of the other places had like criteria and category like there was some selection process of like we are going to send our smartest our best our brightest the people who most exemplify our culture you know whatever their perspective was but they were looking for talent whereas venezuela literally did just like send whoever was lucky basically. And so that's part of the argument is like, well, they had a they had a poor chance of having any of their candidates be like the best of the best because they didn't choose for particular qualities that would be necessary for survival. They played by the rules. How dare they? Well, it wasn't they weren't specific rules. The rules were you can send two for every however many people, but how you decide that is up to you. And a bunch of particularly conservative Islamic communities did didn't send any women because they wouldn't send any women unless they could be assured that they would be living within particular cultural constraints, which couldn't be guaranteed on a space station. 
So no. And then, so they didn't. And that was actually part of why Camilla was sent by Denmark or wherever, because as a protest to make sure that someone from those communities was represented in space, which I thought was very generous of that community, because I'm sure they didn't get to send a lot. There's not a whole lot of Denmark to be like, nope, you know what? We want to make sure that some of the most conservative communities of the Middle East are representative there, which is kind of awesome. Also, some of what we think is the best that they've made. But yeah, so Venezuela riots, and they are also right around the launching pad for a lot of the last um, materials. So they end up impeding the sending of the last supplies. And so the United States nukes Venezuela to protect the launch pad. And that is a whole thing right before the crisis. And everyone's like, I mean, this is a whole thing, but also in span of like the entire Earth being annihilated like tomorrow... It's we're at the point where nuclear war is not not a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. It feel or it's more like it feels like it should be a big deal, but it's not in the in the grand I mean, scheme of things. To be fair, if we were to look forward within the recolonization of Earth, mm-hmm. 5000 years later, Venezuela is still covered in nuclear fallout. Because mm. the half-life of uranium is thousands of years. Yeah. Isn't it? Maybe. I'd have uranium. to look that up. Order. I seem to remember that like it's a it's a big deal for a long time. So like, mm. I think it would still be an issue. But yeah, but that's interesting in that you know not only is there one person to represent entire an entire culture of people, but also there's a at least one nation whose culture isn't represented, and they end up kind of trying to fuck it up for everyone else. They're like, we didn't get anyone up there, so we're not gonna let you launch other stuff, despite the fact that the launching of the stuff is what makes it possible for everyone who does go up there to ultimate fuck you guys. Yeah, so it's like, well, if we can't come, then we're gonna take you all down. And somebody on the space station is like, I mean, we probably could have made room for at least one, like, Venezuelan person to be sent up. And at that point, someone's like, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's too late, though. Like, you know, we're at the point where, well, also, it's a negotiating with terrorist type of thing. And also, we don't have time for that anymore. Like, if they had made this a thing before now, maybe we could have, you know, shoehorned someone else in. Yeah. Um, but now it's too late. So we're not sure, you know. <laughs> I'm not really sure what I'm saying about that. Just like, you know, it's it's just as important in some ways what one person is able to do when they're not constrained by, you know, politics. It's also just as interesting what a group will do when they feel like they're completely sidelined and ignored and there's no individual to represent their needs. Which is the issue that then the Archies have. Right. Is that they feel like they're not being heard mm-hmm. because someone goes and tells them they're not being heard. Uh. Which is interesting because they do, like, when initially the Archies are upset about not having any real idea of what's going on on the space station and any real interaction with the, the people on the space station, they start rotating, like, 10% of the Arklet population onto the space station and then they go back and stuff so that everyone has a chance to be on the space station, which is a little bit more room and, like, slightly nicer conditions, and also then they'd know the other people who were trying to get them to survive and things, and they talk about how, like, oh, yeah, when you're up on the space station out of the arcs, their perspectives, you know, make so much sense, but then when you go back, it starts to look like bullshit again. Mm. So it gets very interesting um, in terms of, like, yeah, when someone's talking to you face-to-face you kind of get their point, but the more distance you have and the more of a class divide is really what what you're seeing there, then you start to feel like, you know, more and more separated and there's less trust. I think we've kind of diverged a little. 
Should yeah. we move on to another topic? Yeah. Okay, so I think we're sort of done with the talking about story element of this, and we need to do our talking about storytelling. Sure. So I think one of the first things that we should touch on is the extensive use of foreshadowing within the book. Oh, yeah. That's um, definitely a thing. It, it starts out pretty early. Um, within the first few pages, like, the when the moon breaks apart, which is what the story literally opens with, it breaks into seven distinct pieces, mm-hmm. which is... A nice little nod to where the story's going. And it was also, like, the moon breaks apart and it ha- it's these seven lumps with all this dust around it and slowly it coalesces down to these seven bits as the gravitational pull pulls all the dust into the lumps or it comes down in little bits and pieces. So you, you again end up with that, this large mass that gets winnowed down to seven things in the end. And similarly... When you first meet Dinah and she's looking at all of her robots and things, mm-hmm. there's this whole little conversation about how, you know, they're running around on the asteroid and the ones that are nearer to the ship mm-hmm. get all the updates that she's making, but the ones that are further away tend to miss out on the updates. So you end up with this natural selection of um, robots where some are progressing in certain ways and other ones aren't. And in the same part of it, the book also covers the different categories of robots that she has. She has effectively several sub-races of robots yeah. um, which continue to get upgraded and improved and condensed down to be more and more effective at the things that they're designed to do, which is very much the same thing that happens to human beings when they divide into sub-races that are then, you know, sub-races descended from the Eves who then get su- successively caricaturized to be more and more the thing that they are designed to be. Of course, there's also the super obvious thing about the black-footed ferret. Oh, yeah. Moira, who is the geneticist who goes up to the space station, is chosen for her work with black-footed ferrets of essentially reconstituting a a healthy population out of a surviving seven individuals, (laughs) um, which is, of course, like, very on the nose. And... At that point, though, they're like, oh, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with genetic engineering with humans. Like, they want me up here to essentially uh, create and diversify plant and animal life for our survival in space, basically. Like, for the algae colonies and eventually other vegetables and stuff. You know, to keep that stuff healthy and from being subject to a blight or something like that, I guess. So they're just like, yeah, I was chosen because I was able to take seven breeding adults and turn them into a species. But I'm not going to be doing that. I'm just going to be working with, like, algae and stuff. Um, Honest, I'm not. Yeah. And so it's like, uh-huh. And then, like... Ignore this Chekhov's gun. Right. And then they also, uh, similarly, when she... Like, there's so many different times when the Human Genetic Archive is referenced. And it's, like, talking about how it's in this very protected part of the ship. And it's totally safe and nothing's gonna happen to it and that's why we have this thing you know yeah it's like okay (laughs) trying to think if there are other ones i mean i think that's the general yeah i think those are the big ones yeah Yeah. definitely some some heavy foreshadowing there which is interesting as far as storytelling because i don't think like it's not stuff that you pick up on and you're like oh this is a sign of what's going to happen later but when you go back through and you're like oh no like er Mm -hmm. everything was there from the off in like very obvious ways that you just don't know to look for yet much bigger, though, is, I think, the use of story in the story. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of times the characterization of the species or the sub-races. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that, like, I'm not sure how much I buy it, that, like, that would all happen, that you get these people who did hold these very distinct beliefs and that did have extreme versions of these qualities, because over 5,000 years, you would expect a certain amount of mutation, um, which might cause divergence. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, that's a possibility that we can explain away a little bit. 
with like there is genetic engineering going on, so we don't re- we don't know specifically how they're reproducing five thousand years on, and also what level of like inbreeding to even increase that characterization might be happening despite any mutations. But also within the personalities of the individuals, you have this sort of history movie that's presented. Which yeah, like through. the way that the epic is just everywhere in the spacers' like lives. And when I say the epic, so they in the 5,000 years later part, they refer to like all the footage and documentation from the breakup of the moon through to the survival of the seven eves and their initial descendants in a fragment of the moon's core called cleft. All of that stuff was recorded, and so apparently the population that has come from that are just watching footage of these seven people and the other people who were before they died, you know, like Sean Propst and whatever, Marcus. And so they're just, like, constantly watching these movies, constantly reading these logs and these diaries and all of that stuff, and just treating it like a sacred text, basically, and looking for meaning about, like, who they are as descendants of one particular Eve or another, and, like, what values they should be, what what values they were made to carry on in the population, because there's the Council of Seven Eves where they all decide, um, okay, you know, each Eve gets to do what she wants with her eggs, and several of them make explicit statements about what they're gonna do with their offspring. So when you're constantly, like, you're raised watching this, you know, these heroics, these choices, these judgments of other people that, that you know, other people you know are descended from, you know, I think it just sort of permeates your life. Yeah. It's, it's hard to even really imagine it, but like, I really think the sacred text thing is the, the closest, like, analogy. It's like if you were raised in a community very sheltered where everything's structured to the Bible. And, I, and like, there, I think there are communities like this because the whole idea is that we're all descended from Adam or whatever in that particular faith tradition. If you're constantly looking to these biblical figures for guidance and, and inspiration and confirmation of what you need to be doing with your life, like, it becomes inescapable, I think. Yeah, and I think that it does a lot to explain the Chemites, because mm. there's going to be various media within there about her and Julia from before meeting at the White House being friends, and then you're going to have that media later where she's diverged from Julia. So you get this split of the Chemites sort of being okay either way, mm-hmm. and I guess there's an extent to which it's whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament. Yeah, I could see that. And then similarly, there's definitely the inspiration of like editorializing and the different ways you can look at the same thing because the there's the Neoanders, the Neanderthal-inspired subrace of Aedans, and they were built to be really strong and like sort of a counter to Tekla's super soldiery people. But there's like it's discussed. There's a there are different perspectives within the Neoander community of who they are. There are some who really lean into this. Oh, we're you know these strong, brutal fighters, etc. Great at grappling and all this. And then there are others who are like looking at all of the research about ne- Neanderthal culture and the way that they buried their dead with flowers and you know mm-hmm. that they there's evidence of very sentimental cultural traditions among Neanderthals that the cave paintings and things like that and they're like no we're we're not just these brutes you know they uh Neanderthals have larger brains for their body size than homo sapiens and things like that it's like no we're we're these smart sensitive 
artistic, creative people who are also very strong and capable, but we're big softies, basically, mm-hmm. you know? So there's, like, this divergence within that own community. It's like, yeah, you think we're, we're these monstrous cannibal people, but we're actually very gentle giants. Yeah. I mean, like, similarly, you have some of the stereotype stuff that sort of keeps the races divided. There's, like, the different perspectives on the tech lens that, like, they're these disciplined protectors that are necessary and or they're what Hitler would have made if he'd had access to a genetics lab, you know? So it's like being able to mine the human historical records for basically support of whatever your argument is, is definitely a factor at different points in the book. A similar thing sort of happens with the diggers. You find out that in the last few hundred years since the atmosphere had started to be breathable, the diggers were able to expand their underground tunnels because they were able to have a hole for spoil, but there wasn't any food yet. So they have this expanding population and they still can't go anywhere. But then there's food because the spacers have been terraforming. And so they start sending scouting parties out to go and get like clams and things. And so you start getting a problem of more people like trying to kind of go rogue and live on the surface of the planet. And it makes it harder for the diggers like hierarchical leadership to kind of keep a rein on on everyone and not go their own way and a big part of how they asserted control over their people and like appealed to their sense of like collective identity was by othering the spacers and promoting this narrative of their cowards who ran away and left us to die on this planet yeah and how important that narrative is to keeping their people in check, to keeping people from breeding when they're not permitted to, basically. The other thing that they do being uh, forced sterilization, which is also a whole thing. Um, Without anesthetic. Yay! Sounds horrible for the six out of ten women who are not breeders in the digger population. Yeah. Unclear as to whether men have to deal with that. Even though it's a much simpler operation. Anyway. (sighs) Um, But yeah, so you have that narrative being super important for social control and you know with this countervailing narrative of but there's food now and now we can go out and we can do our own thing and we don't need to be under your thumb anymore because the planet's habitable yeah you know same thing with the pingers presumably we get a whole lot less from them but the fact that you know seeing that blown up image the last image cal ever sent ivy before going underwater has such a profound impact on those pingers that they that the spacers make first contact with tells you that they have their own epic that includes the romantic history of cal and ivy yeah. um like it it doesn't seem to maybe be as wide widely known maybe because it was more private stuff but because only one of the three people, the woman in the group, is like, oh, no, I know what that is. That's the picture Cal sent of his wedding ring around the last, like, sunset he saw or something like that. But it shows you that they have a similar sort of organizing narrative of how they survived and, you know, what role other humans played in that. Yeah. So. Engagement ring. Yes, engagement ring. Did I say wedding ring? Oh, yes. Engagement ring. Just such a very sad moment. There are so many like, moments in this book that really make you, like, feel so emotional and, like, like, I totally cried in a few different points. I think one of the times that I got choked up was the last conversation with Ivy and Cal, and then, of course, the last conversation between Rufus and and Dinah. And I, oh, I, that brings me back to what we were talking about, stories within the stories, the lack of something being set down as part of the narrative to get passed on. 
I think is also just as important because it doesn't seem like the the Morse code transmissions between Dinah and Rufus don't seem to be a part of the epic that everyone understands or can easily understand. Are they included in any way? Because they want to be naturally. I suppose there's cameras. If there's everything. if there's cameras and if there's audio, then of Dinah's like workspace. Yeah. Then there is, but most people in the spacer community don't learn Morse code. It looks like only the Dinans learn Morse code. Uh. Because they talk about, like, each subrace has their own traditions, you know, cultural traditions that they pass on, and young Dinans learn Morse code. Young Teclans learn rustling, like sam- like a Sambo-type yeah. martial art. So, uh, and Julians do debates, etc. Et yeah. So, you, you also have this community of spacers who don't necessarily know that much about Rufus's preparations. Like, a few of them do, and they did look for the diggers. But it doesn't seem to be a thing that everyone's thinking about. And similarly, the Diggers, they have no record. More importantly, they have no record at all of Dinah and Rufus's transmissions. Because he was transmitting those outside of the tunnels. He wasn't transcribing them in any way. Those were ephemeral communications. If you didn't have those communications, you've got no reason to think that the spacers didn't run away as cowards. Exactly. And so I think that becomes so important. Like, what doesn't get kept in, you know, the records? Yeah. It has such a profound impact on that first contact because they are they're able to say you guys left us you're mutants that ran away yeah and if you if they had records of rufus and dinah you know if if rufus had written down like you know oh talk to dinah today i'm so proud of her um and you know so grateful for all the help that she's given me in planning our you know underground survival strategy and like oh, i would never have known we needed this stuff it's interesting like, that that didn't get passed down to his kin just verbally i mean but over 5000 years yeah, like I, so. it, I mean just... the details in that I mean, I guess if I think about what I know about my great-grandparents, it ain't much. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So just, like, what what is canon, you know? Yeah. Ends up being so important down the line. The one thing I want to add on to your, um, like, just note about the sad parts of the story and things is uh, I think, like, the entirety of Doc Harris's storyline yeah. with, like... Because, yeah. like, I think he's the one person in the narrative where they're like, you're going to go to the space station. He's like, do I have to? Yeah. Like, I've met this woman, we're very happy, like, can I just be here? Enjoy my last two years. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's like, no, I've got I've got to go, okay. And then, like, the embryo gets destroyed that they've created <laughs> together. Which was, like, his, that was his uh, condition. He's like, okay, I'll go, but you have to let me bring my embryo with me. Yeah. Which I think is more for her than him as well. I think it's for him too. Yeah. And as you say, Marcus isn't exactly sympathetic when that mm-hmm. then gets destroyed. And he does make it to the cleft. Which yeah. I think, it, like, I think he is like the last person to die. Other and that than was the his eight. vision too. Like, his foresight was: yeah. we need to get to a safer orbit and then get to the cleft. That's a place we can actually make a safe habitat. He gets to be buried on the moon, which yeah. I think is as far as like he does get a nice ending to his arc. Yeah. But like his entire arc is just like profoundly sad. He is eternally caught up in other people's plans. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah. I think he does have one of the more satisfying arcs, though, in terms of he does what he wants to do, ultimately. He He's the first one to observe, like, that, hey, this is gonna, this is a time bomb. In two years, this planet will be uninhabitable and we, we gotta get moving, you know? Yeah. And so he's, he's the oracle in this story. Yeah. You know, he's the one, we need to do that. The big ride is our best chance. Big ride being the one where we jump to a higher orbit that's more clear of debris. And then cleft is our best chance. Like, he's the one who's always seeing that, like, next big jump. Yeah. 
I think that Neil Stevenson does do a very good job, and one of the reasons I like his writing in that making sure that characters, characters who deserve a good ending, get a good ending. Mm-hmm. Like e- even if it's a sad ending, it's yeah. it's justified, it's well done, it's satisfying. Um, like Sean Probst and Marcus, particularly Marcus, are we sad that he dies? Yes, he has the relationship with Dinah that like is very sad for her. Like she's had enough hits already, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But like he gets to get there in this sort of triumphant way. He did what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the lack of things like that that stop me watching shows like The Walking Dead anymore, where you're right. killing off people for the sake of killing off people. Mm-hmm. It's not justified to the character. And anyway, yeah. um, well, and in that similar vein, and like it's a character who's not super well developed, but Jiro, the nuclear engineer who goes on that very small mission with Dinah, Marcus, and VHS Love to retrieve the Emir expedition and the Comet Corps. Right. Yes. And Dinah's the only survivor of that mission. Like. But Jiro spends several hours knowing that what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to go down into the reactor and he's never coming out so that they can actually move forward. And so he spends several hours teaching Dinah how to do his part of what has to happen to get them to the space station. And Dinah at first doesn't realize that this is a weirder out of character for him because she's spent her life around grown men who knew how to do technical stuff. And when they were bored and there wasn't anything else exciting to do, they would teach her how to do technical stuff. But Jiro's like a very like reserved guy and like just does his stuff. So it didn't, she didn't realize until later until some of the words he's using where he's like, you will do this thing. And then if you see this, you will have to do this, you know? It's super critical that this happen, whatever. And she eventually realizes, like, oh, shit, no, he really expects me to do that thing that he's been doing. Oh, okay. Like, for real. In the most for real situation. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's like, where, what are you, what are you doing? Like, why am I, why am I doing this part? And he explains that he's also going to have to go on a self-sacrificing mission like the other two guys had done. Yeah. Um, so that they can make it and it's like oh shit you know and it's like you don't get it built up but like it's it's hinted like he was one of the ones who did clean up at fukushima and things like that like he's a nuclear scientist who's used to dealing with nuclear fallout and things like that i think he makes like a couple of jokes and things like that and you just get this sense of him as like this quiet competent guy who you know keeps a cool head in a crisis and you know makes sure that the mission gets done and it's also very sad when like he hands off his computer to her and it's yeah and it's very sad But getting away from how the stories within the story shape the story, there's also the info dump aspect of any Neil Stevenson book that I did want to just briefly talk about how well managed it is in 70s. Your mileage may vary depending on how interested you are in some of the scientific concepts and topics that are you know, heavily used and explained in the book. But in general, I feel like he does a good job of only explaining stuff that is then relevant. I do think he might explain the same things multiple times, and it's not necessarily critical to go into all of the details that many times. But I do think that it all adds to your understanding of, like, the tension and, like, what's at stake. Yeah, and I think there's an extent to which maybe you need to have a lesson in orbital mechanics more than once to understand this book. Maybe. Um, yeah, that's and fair. like in case you skipped over it the first time, maybe maybe if it's there the second time you're like, maybe maybe I should read this. Um no, I th- I think it does work well. Um I mean, I I am potentially more interested in the scientific phenomenon than mm-hmm. an average reader, I don't know, but yeah. yeah. I I do think it's important in terms of establishing the stakes. And the timelines in a way that feels very real. Because 
you could just say, uh, the moon blew up and the earth will be uninhabitable in two years. But that's a big ask of someone to just buy without any real context or details. But when you get into the science of why that's the case and like the slow realization of why that's the case, it does create a, a definite sense of urgency and helps to make it much more understandable why much more believable that the entire world world throws resources at this problem. Yeah, and I think it also, like, that so much of the dynamics of how it happens is key to the plot. I have always admired, um, it's a Justin Timberlake film, so maybe people will judge me, but uh, the sci-fi science fiction film In Time, hmm. which is set in a world where currency is now lifespan, mm-hmm. so everyone has, like, a little counter on their arm of how much life they have left. And, like, buying a cup of coffee is, like, one minute or something. And, you know, your rent is five days or something like this. So you earn life and things. And there's all sorts of questions you could ask about logistically. How did this happen? Why would this happen? Blah, 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 blah. But there is, like, an intro narration from Justin Timberlake that is effectively, this is how things are now. Don't worry about it. Like, it's it just it's hand-waved as a, this is how society is. It's been this way for a long time. Why is not important to this story. And I, I appreciate just the, like, this is a thought experiment, let's go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what's going on here, and it's not what this story needs. But that does happen in this book. The very beginning, it's the moon right. broke up for reasons, basically. Like, like it's very, I can't remember the exact wording, but it very much is that this is what happened, we don't know why, why doesn't actually matter, uh, this is the situation we're in at the story. All right, got that. Moving yeah. on from there. And to a certain degree, I think that the level of science, of uh, scientific backup of what happens next helps, you know, and is maybe necessary because you can, you only get like one of those, you know? Yeah. So like once you have said the moon blew up for reasons, you, you know, we maybe want some support on the rest of it. Yeah. And I think that it's nice the way that like it, does go into the like it could have been anything it could have been a passing asteroid it could have been something an old alien left there to go off at a certain time it doesn't matter moving on (laughs) yep uh the point is we have got two years yep better make the most of it so yeah i think that that it's a good counterbalance to this very big ask in terms of suspension of disbelief that then everything else is so grounded in details and scientific rigor yeah so i think that's most of the things that we wanted to touch on yeah. So I think we need to move on to the big question at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, what does it mean to survive? That's a really good question, because the different groups we see survive all end up being very different. So, like, could you say that, like, regular humans survived? Or have they evolved into three subspecies, one of which has a whole lot of other subspecies? Because the humans on the end, 5,000 years later, are very different than the humans that you start with, like me and you. You take that. that. That's a very scientific look at the question. Um, and I mean, you're kind of asking a Theseus's ship yeah, question. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I guess we would say that Neanderthals haven't survived. They've become something else and are now extinct. In the old, in the form they once had. Yeah. yeah. And you could say the same of humans unless, well, I guess there's, there is the, the diggers, which are the closest yeah. um, to like the original form of humanity. But at the same time, if you look at humans 200 years ago, they were significantly shorter. Mm-hmm. Has humanity changed from that? No. But we're not dramatically different on a genetic level. Mm-hmm. The edits that go onto the spaces, 
you could argue that. And the pingers. I really don't think that the pingers get to where they are from just selective breeding. Like, that's bullshit, I think. Um, yeah, I think we talked about yeah, that Yeah, we did, we did. Um, but, like, I would say that that's a different group yeah. of beings. But, I mean, I think from a scientific point of view, you could say that they haven't survived genetically because they've become something different. Except maybe the diggers. Except maybe the diggers. But I think from a sociological standpoint... And like they're a cultural humans. standpoint, yeah. they're humans. There's a lot of the same beliefs that have been passed down. They have had to adapt to hold up for that. Mm-hmm. You know what? I think that the survival is in the continuous narrative. Um, mm. Like it's much like you know, I know who I am and who I've been because I can remember the thread backwards to earlier stages of my being. I'm not the same as I was when I was a child, but I remember being that child and that there's a continuous existence that I'm aware of. And I think it's the same with the cultures of the pingers, of the diggers, of the spacers, and their shared understanding of their shared origin, that they survive. They are what survived of a common organism or a common community. It's interesting. And I mean, obviously this is written by an author who lives within our society. It is interesting how much of the story is about a return to a similar status quo. A lot has changed regarding the Earth and the fact that now some people are living in space, but you do end up going back to a point of nations and divisions and this drive of maybe we should be unified. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the group of seven Mm-hmm. Um, like A7 is mm-hmm. one person from each of the races of the subspecies um, and then we need to form the first nine now that we have diggers and pingers to worry about as well so you get a lot of the same concerns there well, I... let's go back to what is the purpose because at the end they talk about some nebulous purpose that a bunch of big movers and shakers and spacers are yeah. um, about and like it's unclear as to what it is but it does seem to be that the purpose has something to do with reuniting humanity. Yeah. And I think to an extent that is an important part of survival because the whole point was to go back to the earth when it was habitable. And part of that is bringing back in the continuing strains of humanity that they'd been separated from for such a long time. And so like, have we really survived if we can't reintegrate with the other parts of who we were? Yeah. It's a difficult question to answer as such. Yeah, it is. I don't know. I I still go back to this. Like, I think survival is contingent on getting past the crisis while still knowing who you were and what you did to get through it. Like, you have the full awareness of the journey of the journey and the the trajectory. If that makes sense. Well, it's interesting because that means that the by the two arguments of what survival means as to the scientific like how close are you to your origins, mm-hmm. where the diggers are the closest to that origin. By the cultural, sociological standpoint of having that complete narrative, they're actually the furthest from it. Mm, it's true. Or, but And part of that's through disinformation. You know, they're contaminating their own thread of historical accuracy, basically. Through their quest to be able to control. Right. Yeah. Which does feed back into some of the arguments we feel like Neil Stevenson is making about the dangers of politics and propaganda and trying to use words and arguments to manipulate rather than to accomplish. It's interesting that the epic 
that serves as this historical narrative, however, is something that seems to then reinforce the division between the sub-races. It definitely does, yeah. And it seems to constrain their potential in terms of like what, they, what they're focused on and what they want to do, what they're trying to do. And that does become important because there's the whole thing with the eye that they make that goes down to the Earth, but only around the equator which is mostly parts that blue controls. And so the red side, which they had not been at war at with, didn't want them to do that. They wanted to wait and do something that was more versatile that would take longer and be more complicated, but would go more parts of the earth, including parts where they had people. And the blue people were like, we can always do that later and we're not doing it now. And so that's what really sets that split. It's no, we're not going to listen to your concerns. We're going to shove them off and we'll deal with them later, which is exactly what happened. We can do the thing right now. Yeah. And so then they're like, well, well, fine. If you're not going to, if you're not going to take our needs into consideration, if you're going to be very narrow minded in terms of your perspective, we're going to break away and we're going to do our own thing that, you know, serves our needs. I think I might've gotten a little bit away from what we were talking about, but Inter- it's part of that like that narrative of no we're the people who know what we need to do like we we know what needs to happen and that kind of goes back to to the space station it's like we're the people in the space station we're the experts we know what has to happen what makes sense and what's practical right now and so we're going to do that and we're not looking at these bigger picture down the line concerns because those are down the line yeah so what does it mean to survive well in terms of like this narrative it's it's i think that relates back to these patterns established by being bathed in this epic where you're, you know, looking up to these heroes who are constantly like, well, what can we do? What's feasible right now? This survival-oriented strategy rather than this thriving-oriented pr- strategy that the, mm. like, Aiden side wanted. And I guess that that's the big, big thing is when questioning what, what is survival is survival versus, versus thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, they subsist for a long time. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the end that they're... With the terraforming of Earth and then the... Uh, forming of the nine and moving towards unity mm-hmm. they're moving towards a position where they can thrive rather than survive right Does that answer it? i don't know that it answers it but i i don't know that i have anything else to add to it though yeah i think with the notion of sort of subsisting for a while it's interesting to look at the names that are used within the piece mm. particularly for the vehicles that they're on the isss Start of the story has been renamed Izzy mm-hmm. in this sort of friendly, existing sort of way. Mm-hmm. And it's partially, it's intentionally to make it like appealing and, you know, for the for the PR about the Cloud Arc. And it was renamed that, mm-hmm. like, co- like there was sort of like, whether it was a coincidence that it was around the same time that a woman took charge of it and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, then we get the large ice comet that's mm-hmm. named Emir, mm-hmm. which is the large ice giant's name. Mm-hmm. which is sort of this big adventure to go and get it. Mm-hmm. But once you get back and you're past the... Oh, there's New Cared. New Cared is the vessel that Marcus and Dinah and Jiro and Vyacheslav take to retrieve Emir. You have to remind me. He names it New Cared after one of the vessels in an Arctic expedition that was extremely dangerous. Uh... Um, and I think also had very few survivors. Maybe a bad naming choice on Marcus's part. 
And then when Dinah brings it back, brings the comic horror that's partially being pushed by the car- by the carcass of New Cared, they use the ice and shape it around the space station to protect it and call the new vessel Endurance, which is inspired by the same Arctic expedition. Yes, but it's also a nice term for what they're at that point, because yeah. you're at that point, you're past it being an exodus, you're past it being an adventure, you're at the point where it's a case of, we need to survive, mm-hmm. we need to endure. Get to the safe place. Yeah. It's very much about base level survival at that point. Yeah. And it's then that you end up getting, you move forward and you get to the point where you get have the habitat ring. Mm-hmm. Endurance is long behind and everything. And at that point, you have Cradle, mm-hmm. um, which is the place that has the bar, I believe, mm-hmm. and is the place that effectively the new civilization is born Mm -hmm. it's where the seven meet to go down and meet the diggers and the pingers Mm -hmm. yeah well cradle locks in on parts of the earth's equator Mm -hmm. it's in the atmosphere so it's like it's the first place that humans are able to be on earth yeah well from space that the spacers are able to be on earth yeah so i think that's a nice notion of moving from enduring to living again it is it's also interesting that like then they're the habitat ring is like all the habitats in the habitat ring are named and the ones that are at even numbers like like whole number from like latitude i think are named after heroes of the epic and so in the same way like even though they have they're in they are in this position where they're expanding enough and they're thriving enough to be striking out and building all of these new habitats around the earth, they're still very caught up in honoring and remembering and clinging to the heroes of the past that got them there. Yeah. But I think that there is a notion of you have to survive for a while before you can thrive. So I think that that's something we can take away as a message from it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. So I think that's probably as close as we're going to get to an answer to the big question. Probably. I think the bigger question is if you were to develop a tabletop role-playing game of the Seven Eves 5,000 years later, which of the human sub-races would be, like, the coolest? And or what natural character classes go with those sub-races? I mean, Moiron is clearly the coolest one. Epigenetic shift halfway through your character's arc, it seems... No, you're a totally new person! Roll all the new stats! Yeah. I'm bored of this class. I mean, Teclan is obviously barbarian. No, because they're super disciplined. No, Teclan would be monk, wouldn't it? Monk or maybe paladin. Okay. Um, maybe fighter, but I think prob- I think you're probably right with monk, because discipline is just as important as the martial art and the strength um, of the body. I feel like you've already thought about this a large amount of time. No, not really. The Let's see. Aiden's difficult because there's a variety there. Yeah, but you could go with specific ones. I think that the... The Jenny, which are the the big brains, there we don't ever see one, but they're referred to as the big brained Aedans that are supposed to be counter to Ivies. Those are probably like wizards or something, you know, really intellectual people or psionics. You're gonna have a psionic character. What would Julians be? Nobles, bards. Yeah, yeah they're bards. debate and like persuasion. Aedans too, some of them because like they're talking about how they're actors and artists and stuff. Aidens can do most of it, really. Well, yeah, among them, they're a good spread. The Neoander could be barbarian or fighter. What would Moiran be? Warlock? Sorcerer? Sorcerer, yeah, sorcerer. I think sorcerer, because there's that element of chaos there. Yeah. And a certain lack of control of what your character is going to do, or can do. It's all about, all about the circumstances. Hold on, sidebar. Julian, Aiden, 
Declan, Moiran, Ivan, Dynan, Kenite. Mm-hmm. Ivan, Dynan, Dynan, and Kenite are the ones we haven't done on there. Yeah. I think the Dynans are the most versatile because that's like the human in D&D. So it's, there's not like a natural one. The whole point is that they're versatile, but they're like adventurers. So maybe human, fighter. Yeah, human fighter. <laughs> um, or maybe ranger. I think ranger, maybe, actually. Yeah. I think ranger. Kenite, I would say cleric. Yeah, that makes sense. Because they're like the nurturing ones and not violent. In fact, pacifist. So. Yeah. What are the modifications that Ivy makes? Intelligence. She wants her descendants to be really, really smart. So, like, the universities are full of Ivans in the habitat. Um, so that would probably also be wizard or yeah. something like that. So, yeah. Diggers yeah. are obviously dwarves. Yes. Well, I mean, it makes sense, too, that there'd be parallels between the different sub-races sub of Aiden and the other ones, because that was kind of the whole point. So yeah. she would have the Jenny and the Ivan would be the wizards. And you'd have the Extats and the Julians would be the... Bards. The real problem, though, is that with D&D classes, you'd never be able to form a nine because you're never going to get everyone's schedules to line up so you can all adventure at the same time. Well, also, you can't also adventure subterranean and in the ocean at the same time very easily. No. And in space, there's some logistical problems. Well, that's the point. That's why you end up with, you know, drow who aren't in the Underdark and things. I suppose. Anyway, we're getting into the weeds on that. Also, I think that it would make a really great movie. The, the D&D? No, just seven Aves. Seven Aves as a book. I think it would make a really great movie. Um, well, you've got some, I've got some good news in my fun facts for you. They're making a movie? Fun facts! So moving on to the fun facts, guys. 2016, Ron Howard has signed onto it to direct. There's not been much news on it since then, but I imagine it's a decent undertaking. But no, it is in the works. Yay! That's um, awesome. Which ties in with the fact that they're making Snow Crash into a TV series at the moment. I did know about, th- about yeah. that, so we'll see how that goes. So that might be sort of a... Making sure that Neil Stevenson's name is out there before they release whatever huge movie they would have to make to make this into a film. I'm because... excited. That's going to be cool. Yeah. Or or terrible. One of the two. Yeah. But with Ron Howard on board, I feel like yeah. he, he could make a decent go of it. And also with our latest cinematic trend of epics, yeah. I, I think that we've gotten very good as a culture at making big epics, especially big space epics. Skydance Media hired screenwriter William Broyles Jr., director Ron Howard, and producer Brian Grazer. Hmm. I mean, there have certainly been some large-scale films that I think could parallel it. My main concern is what you cut Mm -hmm. and how far through the film you cut to 5,000 years later. Yeah. Because if you reduce the book down to two two hours, Mm -hmm. then that is like less than the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. And you have so much to cover in world building in it. Yeah. But what do you cut out to make the book short? I mean, you could cut out a lot of it because you're not having to explain the orbital mechanics, you're just showing them a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But you do still need to present a lot of the science. You can't cut out something like the Emir expedition. You can't cut out the social media aspects of it. So I hope that they make it the two and a half hour, three hour film that they need to make it. Yeah. And that enough people will buy into it and go and see it. I hope that them making Snow Crash will mean that people are like, oh, it's the same guy that was behind Snow Crash and that works out. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, I had wondered if they would do a movie of it and I meant to look into it and I didn't. So I'm really glad that you found that out because that'll be really cool. Hopefully. I hope. They certainly, at this point, have the technology to make it a really good film, as long as it gets the right budget. And as I say, if it's got Ron Howard on board, it'll probably be okay. And I suppose you could do a lot of it by having semi-narration from whoever plays Dr. Bois, Mm -hmm. as if he's explaining it on the social media stuff. 
yeah. which could be nicely done. The other fun fact I've got is that he actually came up with the idea back in sort of 2004, 2006, depending on what source you read. He he sort of has said at one point, it was about 2004, maybe? The book wasn't published until 2015, but he didn't actually start writing it until 2013. He shopped it around in a lot of different forms as an idea first, including as a video game. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and as TV series and movie first, and no one was quite ready to pick it up, and he wrote the book instead. Okay. Interesting. Um, I think it would do well as a miniseries. I do. Or like as a yeah. television series in general, um, because I think that would give it the space to really get uh, all of those ideas developed and the different timelines developed. Yeah. The idea as a video game is interesting. I think it would have to be set as a sequel for a video game. Maybe. So like you're set in a position where you have all the different races to meet mm-hmm. and then the epic is sort of the history that you uncover as you play. Mm. Um, we can maybe talk about that a little bit more in another episode, which I suspect it will come up. Which, talking of sequel, um, Neil Stevenson does not write sequels. He has written about, I, I don't know how many books he's written, but they've all been standalone books, I believe. Well, no, there's The Baroque Cycle, which is a trilogy. Okay, fair enough. He is not a big fan of sequels. Um, he tends to write the one-off thing, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, this book does seem to end very open-ended. There's a lot of ways that you could go, like how how is the interaction between the spacers and the pingers and the diggers going to work out. There's notions that there's diggers elsewhere. There's also no abandoned... Mars plan, like a third of the colony breaks off to go to Mars, and then you never hear anything else about it. Yeah, people just assume that they died. But it's possible that they're still out there, it's possible they could come back. I don't think they have a lot in the way of the... Like, there's not a geneticist and an engineer on board that area, which is a little bit concerning. Yeah. Um, But they have all been trained to various degrees in survival, so Mm -hmm. they might be able to make a go of it. Neil Stevenson has been asked a couple of times about it. His response seems to be a resounding... Maybe. Maybe, yeah. It, it's a big tease at the end because there, there's the indication that there's a fascinating story of how the diggers survived and how their culture developed and how it changed in the last few hundred years as the planet got habitable. And so that would be an interesting story, very much in the same vein as the epic of like, could get the whole background of Rufus getting everyone together and get making the plans and whatever, all the problems they encounter initially being underground, etc. And then the 5,000 years later, when they start, you know, expanding the tunnels and start having civil unrest, and then when they have scouts, etc. And then with the pingers, like they clearly, I think it explicitly says they have their own epic. Yeah. Like, that's a, I'm pretty sure that's a sentence, which, I don't know, it's, I don't know, it seems like a big tease. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a a book that explored that epic would tread a lot of the same ground, but I would still be interested in it. Yeah, but they'd be different problems. You're going to have subterranean problems versus submarine problems versus Mars problems. Yeah. If they didn't just die. I I kind of, I kind of think they probably just died, though, because they were sort of not prepared. (laughs) Like... The thing is, is that Neil Stevenson tends not to just write things in without thinking about it, I feel. Like, the fact that there's the hints at first that maybe Cal and the submarines are going to survive, yeah. and then they did. And that Rufus might... And then they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so sending Mar- a Mars expedition off, and then they just disappear. Then They're dead. Is a bit of a whatever. Okay, do you have any fun facts to add? Um, I did want to point out one thing. I'm not sure if it's a fun fact or not, but... At one point in Seven Eves, Tavistock Prowse is talking about the singularity and the point at which humans will be able to scan their brains and live on forever in like a digital existence. Uh Do you remember that happening? Yeah. Well, Neil Stevenson's most recent book, Fall or Dodge in Hell, is actually about exactly that. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Huh. Yeah. Which came out, obviously, a few years after Seven Eves, because it just came out, I believe, last year. Yeah. So it came out... October-ish. Yeah. Of 2019. So... He may have been working on that idea 
around the same time. Interesting. Although he did have a book coming out in between that. Yes. Uh, Department of D.O.D.O. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't Department of the first part of D.O.D.O.? You're right. Yeah. It's just D.O.D.O. Yeah. And then a whole subtitle that I forget. Yeah. Okay, cool. And that one's about weird time travel stuff. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, the other thing is, in the acknowledgments, Neil Stevenson talks about having come up with this, this idea while he was working for Blue Origin and having conversations with Jeff Bezos and other experts there about various space survival things, which is interesting. He just sort of casually name drops Jeff Bezos in the acknowledgments there at the beginning. Huh. Although that would have been... He would have been working with him in like 2004, 2005. Yeah. And then that would have been 2015. Yeah, okay. But by the time he's name dropping him, Jeff Bezos is definitely a big deal. Cool, okay. I thought those were neat things. Any feedback, follow up, late thoughts? I always do have late thoughts, but I keep forgetting about them. And Write like, them down. when we're actually recording, I don't remember what they are, so. I'm sorry. Well, one day you're going to come back with Yeah, in good omens. Yeah. Uh, what did to say about The Shining? We did get some feedback from friends about our Russian Doll episode. That one seems to have really been interesting to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, our downloads just that it is as well. Yeah. So a few different people have said that we talked about things that they didn't remember and have inspired people to rewatch the series. So that's yeah. pretty cool. It is, it is interesting like talking to some of the people who have been listening to us. Like, number of people who are either looking at what we're doing and making a reading list to go and read it before they listen to the episodes, or people who are listening to the episodes and then going, oh, I should go read that thing. It sounds cool. Yeah. So that's fun. The other thing, another friend gave us some feedback about the Nightmare Before Christmas episode and was saying that he was blown away. It's our friend Chris Owens. He was blown away by the Nightmare Before Christmas episode and particularly liked the whole id ego, super ego conversation about the leadership of Halloween Town. So thanks, Chris. This feels um, very masturbatory. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But we got feedback. The feedback being that the these are interesting ideas and people are hearing us talk about things that they hadn't really seen in the work. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Um, if you have any feedback, please do give it to us. We have sort of the next couple of weeks schedule that I can give you now and we'll be posting what's going to happen for the last part of February soon. We've been talking about doing a video game for a while. We're going to do Horizon Zero Dawn next week. The week after that, we are going to do the whole series of The Good Place, as that's just wrapped up its final season, and we're about to watch it soon, hopefully. And then we're probably going to finish the month out with an album, but we haven't decided which one yet, so we'll let you know. Starting in March, we're going to be taking on some book series, and we've been asking for people's input online on our Facebook page as to whether you would rather we did one episode that did the whole series or whether we do a different episode for each book in the series. If you would like to weigh in on that, please do go check out our poll online. It's open for a few more days. So you can find that on our Facebook page at Unramblings. You can also find us on Instagram at Unramblings and on Twitter at UnramblingsPod. And you can email us with any general thoughts, suggestions of topics, or suggestions on things we should do differently, feedback, or your own thoughts on anything we've been doing at our email address, unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. We also welcome people to post on Facebook, Twitter, and such about their thoughts on what we've been talking about. Use the hashtag unramblings and we'll weigh in and it'd be great to get some discussions going online. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next week. I'm getting a call from Spam Risk. Put that on the podcast.